stand all of your power and authority. We're not. You are the waymaker. You're the lion and the lamb. You are the good, good father. And you are the king of kings. We come before you, Father, recognizing that in many ways our praise, well, feels inadequate. Our worship feels less than what it could be. There are times, Father, our heart leaps. There are times, Father, we're overwhelmed by how amazing you are. But there's also times, Father, where life is hard. And we wonder where you are, what you're doing. So God, even this day, come and fill this place. Would your spirit be so abundantly active? Would your word be able to penetrate and be able to fill each one of us? Would it ignite us? Would it propel us? Would it comfort us? Would it convict us? Oh, Father, would you receive honor in all that we do? We love you. We love you. Father, there's so many different churches in our neck of the woods and, and so many places all over in the Midwest and in the States and all over the world that, that even today, even now, are proclaiming your word and worshiping and adoring you. Some are in house churches. Some are in grand cathedrals. But we pray, Father, that your kingdom would come. We pray that, that it would look more today like you want it to look. Because your people are listening to you. And you are unleashing an army of people into this world to make a difference. We pray all these things in your son's name. Amen. You may be seated. Life is hard. It's challenging. It's puzzling. It's relentless. Every night when we close our eyes and we wake up the next day, some are encouraged, some are carrying some heavy, heavy burdens. We pray today that you would hear from our God our amazing God, that your perspective would change, that you would be drawn in a new, in a fresh way. 
We're getting back to the book of Ephesians. So if you have your flat screens or your Bibles, and you'd like to open up to Ephesians chapter 3, we're eventually going to get there. But Paul's faith in God inspires me. Don't you love hanging around people that kind of, well, see life differently? It's not always so dreary. It's not always so dark. It's not always so hard. It is. But perspective seems to make it different. And to me, that was Paul. And I saw that Paul understands God's grace in a new and a fresh way. And if you've been part of this church, you've heard about God's grace over and over and over. And sometimes we hear that term, God's grace, and, and we're almost numb to it. <laughs> I get it. It's about God's grace. But, but Paul's understanding of God's grace ignites me. And I think we actually need his perspective today. I was reminded when he wrote a letter to the Romans, and in Romans chapter 2, verse 4, he said this, Don't you understand those who I'm writing the letter to? How wonderfully kind and tolerant and patient God is with you. Does this mean nothing to you? All of his kindness and graciousness and mercy? Can't you see that his kindness or his grace is intended to turn you from your sin? Sometimes we think God is a God with a big hammer. Or sometimes we think that God needs a hammer. But over and over and over, it's God's grace that turns us to repentance. It's God's grace that gives us perspective. It's God's grace that ignites us to be able to get up in the morning. And in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 9, The author of Hebrews writes this, Your strength comes from God's grace. It's a clear understanding of grace that empowers you every day. So when Paul continually writes this letter to his dear friends in Ephesus, a church that he spent the most time at, the church that he loved dearly, a church that he knew so many of the people's scenarios or situations, it was probably the most mature out of all the audiences. By mature, I don't mean gray hairs. By mature, I simply mean people who have understood God's word and obey it. They listen to God. They're following God with all of their hearts. And every church has those folks. But the group, well, at Ephesus, seemed to have a larger concentration of mature believers. And Paul focuses on grace. This is old. He shouldn't have to do this all the time. Paul's an older gentleman, and at this moment he's under house arrest because of his faith, because he is proclaiming the gospel powerfully. He begins his letter. 
And again, it's been a while. We took a short break and focused on the three greats, but, but now we're back. And, and we started this study in August. And back then, Paul started to list for all the believers all the spiritual blessings that they've received. And it was this unbelievable bullet list. They are showered with God's grace and mercy. They are loved. They are adopted. They are redeemed. They are forgiven. They have been given the gift of the Holy Spirit. Something that for centuries God followers were hoping for. Then Paul begins praying for the church. And by the way, not individuals. For this church, for this corporate gathering, for this community of believers. And he prays and he says, I hope you grow in your intimacy with God. Because I just want you to know God better. You're blurred. Again, writing to a very mature group. I want you to be confident, Paul says, of of your future. Of all that God has for you. Not only for tomorrow, but for eternity. Whoa. And I want you to experience God's power. I just don't want you to read about it. I just don't want you to teach it. I want you to absolutely have it flow through your blood. Oh, this is my prayer for you, my good friends at the church at Ephesus. And then he reminds the church that they have been rescued by grace and mercy in order to do. Rescued in order to be the hands and the feet of Jesus. Then he shares some earth shaking news. News none of the Jews were prepared for. The Gentiles kind of like this news. And that was mostly the church at Ephesus. But he says this, the Jews and the Greeks, so the Gentiles, are united and together they're part of the church. All the things that, well, separated you. Well, because of Jesus, you are now part of the same body. You look different. You act different. You have different cultural values, but you gather together as a church in order to represent me. And then he said this, grace makes us citizens and members and a people where God dwells. All right, that's two chapters in a nutshell. And Paul's letter is starting to gain momentum. And he says, because all of this amazing, wonderful truth, this life-transforming truth, he opens up and we start in chapter 3. And I've asked Lauren to read for us. So if you would, you can follow along either on the screen or in your Bibles right now. Ephesians chapter 3, starting at verse 1. When I think of all this, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus for the benefit of you Gentiles, assuming by the way 
that you know God gave, you, gave me the special responsibility of extending his grace to you Gentiles. As I briefly wrote earlier, God himself revealed his mysterious plan to me. As you read what I have written, you will understand my insight into his plan regarding Christ. God did not reveal it to previous generations, but now, by his spirit, he has revealed it to his holy apostles and prophets. As, and this is God's plan. Both Gentiles and Jews who believe the good news share equally in the riches inherited by God's children. Both are part of the same body and both enjoy the promise of blessings because they belong to Christ Jesus. By God's grace and mighty power, I have been given the privilege of serving him by spreading the, his good news. Though I am the least deserving of all God's people, he graciously gave me the privilege of telling the Gentiles about the endless treasures available to them in Christ. I was chosen to explain to everyone this mysterious plan that, I, that God, the creator of all things, had kept secret from the beginning. God's purpose in all this was to use the church to display his wisdom and its rich variety to all unseen rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This is his internal plan, which we carried out through Christ Jesus our Lord. Because of Christ and our faith in him, we can now come boldly and confidently into God's presence. So please don't lose heart because of my trials here. I am suffering for you, so you should feel honored. Paul starts off, and if you look back at verse 1 of chapter 3, so, or in light of all the things I just shared with you, you Gentiles are no longer, excuse me, when I go to verse 1, not uh, chapter 9, okay, never mind. Chapter 3, verse 1. When I think of all this, Paul says, as I look back and see all this amazing things, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus for the benefit of you Gentiles, then literally what happens, and you may not get this completely, but we should probably shift right away at this moment all the way to verse 14. Now, the reason I'm saying this is that Paul begins to ramble, all right? No, it's all good rambling, but we're going to next week, uh, or in two weeks when we pick this up, the next time we open this text, we're going to go back to verse 1 here and connect it with verse 14. So Paul is overwhelmed by all the things that are happening. He's so grateful to God But all of a sudden, he starts to go down a rabbit trail. I know none of us ever do that. But that's what Paul did, actually, at this moment. So we're going to focus on verses 2 through 13. It definitely is a tangent, but it's a God-directed rabbit trail. And I think your hearts are really going to be encouraged. God extends grace to Paul our world, and to the church. If you recall, even in our introduction of uh, Ephesians, we talked about focusing in the first three chapters on God's grace, or the doctrine of God, or the teaching of God. 
And then once we hit chapter 4, 5, and 6, he makes all of these things so very, very practical. So we're still in the, shall we say, truth section. And somehow God's grace overwhelms him. He doesn't go into his prayer right away, like I said in verse 14. But he starts rambling about God's grace. God revealed his gracious plan to Paul. Okay? God graced Paul. He understood it. He understood God's grace in spite of his education, in spite of all of his upbringing, in spite of all of his experience. Paul was overwhelmed by God's grace. One of the reasons is that God revealed this gracious plan, which we're going to chat about in a second, to Paul personally. Then he gave Paul the special responsibility or the mission of sharing God's gracious message to the Gentiles. God waited for the perfect time for his spirit to be able to share this mysterious plan. Now, in some of your versions, you will literally see the mystery. And for us, especially in our culture, we see the word mystery and we think it's some kind of um, you know, plot, and, and some of us love to watch mysteries or read about mysteries. The Greek word here is really simple, all right? It just means this. It's a truth that was never, ever, ever, ever revealed before, but right now it's revealed. So that's all Paul is saying. He's saying, nobody understood God's plan, but I get to reveal it to you today. And this is God's plan. Both Jews and Greeks who believe in the good news share the inheritance equally. (laughs) Two opposing nationalities. Two people that were at odds, or two groups of people who were at odds all the time. Say, not anymore. Jews and Greeks. They're united because of their faith in me. You see, the good news is the gospel. The good news is you're going to have peace with God, whether you're a Jew or whether you're a Greek. You see, Jesus died on the cross, shed his blood, so that you could and I could be reconnected with God. It's amazing news. And Paul said, I get to share it. The inheritance that he's talking about is that we receive Christ's presence. We get to do life with God living in us now, and we're going to enjoy God forever. The problem is, is that so many different folks have such different views of God that it doesn't seem attractive. It just doesn't. Like, why would I want God living in me? And why would I want to spend eternity in God? I mean, that seems a little bit, ah, wow, boring. I'm going to have to behave differently. I'm going to have to. And you just start filling in all the blanks when God says, oh, whoa, 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 stop. 
Do you understand? I'm a good God. I'm a good, good father. I'm the one who created you. I know how you're wired. I know how you'll experience life. I know what brings you peace. I know what brings you fulfillment. Do you know that? Do you know that? Don't run from me. Don't go your own way. Don't do your own thing. I want to be with you and walk with you. That's what I want to do. Then Paul wrote, and look at verse 7 of chapter 3. Verse 7, chapter 3. By God's grace and mighty power, I have been given the privilege of serving him by spreading the good news. Can you just let that sink in for a little bit? read it one more time. By God's grace and mighty power, I have been given the privilege of serving him by spreading the good news. Wow. Paul is saying that God's grace and mighty power enables Paul to serve. Now, again, in our culture, and as we grow up, what happens is we fight with our selfishness or self-centeredness all the time. And although there's times that, well, it's exciting to serve, most of the time we love being served. We do. But Paul says this, my understanding of God's grace In my supernatural power, which has been given to me by God, enables me to serve because that's what I've been wired for. In my service, not everybody's service, but my service is that I'm going to serve him by spreading the good news. And this is such a privilege. I'm going to be able to tell everyone that you know what? They can get reconnected with God. You know what? You don't have to live dead lives. You don't have to be purposeless. You can invest now and in the future. Oh, that's what a relationship with God does. And I get to tell people that all the time. I see people scurrying, Paul says. I see people grasping at straws, trying to get, well, satisfaction from trivial things or things that last so short in amount of time. But you know what I get to do as a herald of the gospel? I get to tell good news to people. I get to help them find the bread of life. I get to point them to the one who will quench their thirst forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. And Paul says, that's my privilege. Now I gotta stop. Maybe some of you know where I'm going. But most of us don't see that as a privilege. Most of us see the good news as well, it's okay for me, but not that good for everybody. Or let's just say it's news. (laughs) Let's not call it good or great. But it is. 
We are so afraid at times to tell people how amazing our God is. I'm pretty sure Paul's not talking about the bullhorn on the corner with your sandwich boards. And as we focused on even last week, it's as you go, make disciples. You live life. You are a neighbor. You are a worker. And as you move through life, you have a privilege to be able to share with people good news. Let me put it this way. We don't have to. We get to. We get to. Then in verse 8, let me read that. Verse 8, chapter 3, verse 8. Though I am the least deserving of all of God's people, he graciously, did did you get that? Circle, underline, whatever you'd like to do there. Give me the privilege of telling the Gentiles about the endless treasures available to them in Christ. Now, for one thing, remember, Paul grew up hating the Gentiles. (laughs) Every good Jew did. You know, it, it just went against their grain. And so God gives him the privilege to be able to tell Gentiles the good news for one thing. But then what Paul does, and I love this part. He says, God graciously gave me this privilege so that I might be able to tell the endless treasures. Now again, most of us would probably not describe the good news or all that God gave us as endless treasures. We'd say, okay, well, Rick, there's a few benefits. I mean... All right, Um, when I get worried, I can call up to God. I'm a son. (laughs) Okay. And hey, when I finally shut my eyes, I get to go up to the, you know, golden streets. Pretty cool. Oh, guys. Chaos. I, I hope that's not life. Honestly, I do. Paul is looking at this, literally saying, Paul's given, or God's given me the grace to be able to talk about the endless treasures to everyone. People who are apart from God can be part of God. People can be forgiven. We went through the litany of things. You can have the Holy Spirit. Do you understand how amazing that is to walk through life? He'll guide you, direct you, convict you. (laughs) There's nothing like it. These are treasures. And you are missing out. I just want you to know. But I can point you in the right direction. And he says, anyone, anyone who responds to this good news gets these spiritual blessings. That's why he went through it. I just want to say this. So don't think that those who are in ministry or those who get paid in a full-time way are any better or any smarter or any more privileged than anybody else. I do kind of think I have the greatest job in the whole world. I do. But I also know, as I look out, just about everyone else here has amazing jobs. They do. They may not even see it, but they do. They have the opportunity to be salt and light. But those who literally are part of the ministry, I need to remind especially young pastors, it's a privilege. We don't 
deserve it. Paul didn't deserve it. He didn't. He gets to do it. And then he ends up doing this. He sees purpose in his suffering. The very last verse that Lauren read for us. Oh, wow. So, verse 13, please don't lose heart because of my trials here. Yes, I'm in prison. Yes, I'm following God. Yes, life is not exactly as I wanted it. I added all that in case you didn't know. All right? I am suffering for you, and you should feel honored. Well, not only did Paul feel graced, but God graces the world. God graces all those folks well, that don't know him. So, well, how does that? He offers the gift of life to everyone, regardless of race and neighborhood, regardless of where you grew up, and regardless of what your heritage has been, regardless of what all the cultures that you've been part of, regardless of that. You see, right now there's so many injustices and there's so many prejudices, even in the church. But that's not in God's just and loving plan. What he literally is saying is this, everyone, everyone, no matter where you're from, no matter what you are part of, no matter what your past is, everyone can be part of God's family and everyone can share in the inheritance that you'll receive because of Jesus. And everybody can be forgiven and everybody can be loved, and everybody can be adopted, and every, and we just go through that litany again. Everybody, everybody, everybody. God says, I don't care if you're a Jew or a Greek. <laughs> There's been a big wall between you. Everybody can have Jesus. In Romans 10, verse 13, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. You know what, last Wednesday, later on in the evening, I got a text. It was an amazing text. You talk about goosebumps going on your pastor. And it said something like this. A sparky received Jesus as Savior tonight. A sparky. Now, some of you may not even know. Oh, that's nice, sparky. Who's sparky? Sparky are children who are, what are they? Four, five, six-year-olds? Thank you. I go right to the resource there. Kindergarten through second grade. You say, oh, Rick, that's a very young person. It is a young person. But you know what they found out? They found that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And she said, yes, I want that. And God welcomed her into the family. And that happened on Wednesday. And we as a church were praying for that. And we as a church were staffing for that and encouraging for that. And now we get to walk with this Sparky and help her understand all the truths of the Scripture. Say, Rick, it's going to go pretty deep. Probably not. But she is going to understand all and who Jesus is. And she started a journey. Everyone who belongs to Christ can be functioning part of the body. We just went over just a little bit 
ago, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, where God again just pours out and says, I, I just want you to know this gift of salvation is available to everyone if you just come and receive it by faith. You can't work for it. And then he goes on, so that, verse 10, he has created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things he planned for us years ago. So he saved us, gave us opportunity to do good things, to serve our God with great joy and passion. And part of that is sharing good news to even people you may not like. Now, let's face it. I'm pretty sure most of us right here are Gentiles. We are. We're not Jews. But why don't you put in somebody that you really, really don't like? You see them and you go, oh, man, I have a stomachache. Or you go, oh, man, you just don't like them. You don't like the way they look. You don't like the way they talk. They bother you all the time. Now, it's really bad if you're married to that person. Hopefully you're not. Okay? And God has an opportunity to say, hey, I can help them find life. Wow. And then God with his grace graces the church. This is unbelievable. He makes the Jews and the Gentiles who are part of his family, and he has them come together to be the church. At that time, it was revolutionary, all right? Starting in verse 10 of chapter 3, look what Paul writes. God's purpose in all of this, bringing the Jews and the Greeks together, was to use the church. Whoa, he just used the church word. It's to bring them together to be part of the church to display his wisdom in his rich variety to all the unseen rulers and authorities in heavenly places. This was his eternal plan, which he carried out through Jesus Christ our Lord. And then verse 12, because of Christ and our faith in him, we, and you could Put in a little word there. will help you understand. It's not just talking about individuals. It's talking about the church. We, the whole church, can now come boldly boldly and confidently into God's presence. So first of all, he says this. God's plan was to put the church on display as one who would display a trophy. Well, you're really proud of trophies because it usually sig- you know, signifies something. We got a softball team. We got three softball teams. And they get a trophy. One team gets a trophy. Now, all well, the other teams are pretty good, but, but just one gets it. And then they put it on our trophy case. And then everybody looks at it and... Look at all the, all the hours, all the practices, all the rainouts, all the other things that happen. Ah, the trophy. You know what God says? That's a good trophy. But you know what God says? God says, I'm making Crosspoint a trophy. I'm making the other churches in this area a trophy. All right? 
I want to use the church to display its wisdom. I want to make it and proclaim it. Now this diversified but unified family is on a mission. And no one could have imagined this. No one could have, all right? And especially those which Paul just refers to as heavenlies. All those up in heaven, angels looking down, wondering. Can you imagine even while Jesus was working with the twelve? You know, angels gathering around, drinking coffee in the morning, going, look at those guys. <laughs> God's going to really trust them to just do this whole mission thing, you know? Uh, yeah. And God continually revealed by his grace all that was happening and how he used a group of misfits, just like us, to be able to be heralds of good news and help people and encourage people and point people to Jesus. God's plan for the church was to work with us so that we might be able to make disciples who make disciples who make disciples who make disciples who make disciples. Really? (laughs) All of his marbles are in our bag. That's what God does? Yeah. That's what God does. We have a privilege of making disciples, which simply means this, is that we go out to the lost. We don't expect them to come here. We live our lives among the lost, and we share good news with them. We point them to the living water and to the bread of life. And some respond. And then we nurture them. We walk with them. We help them understand all that they are in Jesus. Maybe they, you just walk them right through Ephesians. All right? And then you equip them. And you help them understand all that they are. And then you deploy them. Or you unleash them. Or you send them out every single day to Grant High School. Or to Abbott Lab. You fill in the blank, wherever that is. That's God's strategy. And that's what the heavenlies are basically going, are you serious? (laughs) That's who you're going to rely on? Yeah. (laughs) We're a trophy. He not only believes in us, but he's putting us up on. Look, look, this is how you do it. This is how you reach a world. Last week, I put in your bulletins a stuffer called The Parable of a Life-Saving Station. And I think that parable is one of the greatest metaphors of what a church is all about. And again, if you've been part of the churches, this is not a new parable for you. It's a parable not found in the Bible, but it's a parable that helps me understand what God wants us to do. We go out 
into those folks that don't have hope. We bring them back. We care for them. We nurture them. We equip them and we send them back out into the sea. Let's watch. On a dangerous sea coast, notorious for shipwrecks, there was a crude little life-saving station. Actually, it was merely a hut with only one boat, but the few members kept a constant watch over the turbulent sea. With little thought for themselves, they would go out day and night tirelessly searching for those in danger as well as the lost. Many lives were saved by this brave band who faithfully worked as a team in and out of the life-saving station. By and by, it became a famous place. Some of those who had been saved, as well as others along the seacoast, wanted to become associated with this little station. They were willing to give their time, energy and money in support of its objectives. New boats were purchased, new crews were trained. The station, once obscure and crude and virtually insignificant, began to grow. Some of its members were unhappy the hut was so unattractive and poorly equipped. They felt a more comfortable place should be provided. Emergency cots were replaced with lovely furniture. Rough, handmade equipment was discarded, and sophisticated, classy systems were installed. The huts, of course, had to be torn down to make room for all the additional equipment, furniture, and systems. By the time of its completion, the life-saving station had become a popular gathering place, and its objectives had begun to shift. It was now used as a sort of clubhouse, an attractive building for public gathering. Saving lives, feeding the hungry, strengthening the fearful, and calming the disturbed rarely occurred. Fewer members were interested in braving the sea on life-saving missions, so they hired professional lifeboat crews to do this work. The original goal of the station wasn't altogether forgotten, however. Life-saving motifs still prevailed in the club's decorations. There was a liturgical lifeboat preserved in the room of sweet memories with soft, indirect lighting, which helped hide the layer of dust upon the once-used vessel. About this time, a large ship was wrecked off the coast, and the boat crews brought in loads of cold, wet, half-drowned people. They were dirty, some terribly sick and lonely. Others were different from the majority of the club members. The beautiful new club suddenly became messy and cluttered. A special committee saw to it that a shower house was immediately built outside, away from the club, so victims of the shipwreck could be cleaned up before coming inside. At the next meeting, there were strong words and angry feelings, which resulted in a division among the members. Most of the people wanted to stop the club's life-saving activities and all involvements with shipwreck victims. As you'd expect, some still insisted on saving lives, that this was their primary objective, that their only reason for existence was ministering to anyone needing help, regardless of their club's beauty or size or decorations. They were voted down and told if they wanted to save the lives of various kinds of people who were shipwrecked in those waters, they could begin their own life-saving station down the coast. They did. As the years passed, the new station experienced the same old changes. It evolved into another club, and yet another life-saving station was begun. History repeated itself. And if you visit that coast today, you'll find a large number of exclusive, impressive clubs along the shoreline owned and operated by slick professionals who have lost all involvement with the saving of lives. Shipwrecks still occur in those waters, but now most of the victims are not saved. Every day they drown at sea, 
and so few others seem to care. So very few. To me, the words are haunting. And shipwrecks still occur. We love our comfort. We love our friendships. We love spending time with people we care about. But we forget. Jesus came to seek out the lost. And we have an opportunity to be able to walk with them. God is showing the heavenlies that his plan is wise and amazing and gracious. His plan is brilliant. He is saying, you, me, Greek, and Jew, we get to go out and tell good news of the endless treasures of Jesus. I'm going to skip the next two slides. Let me wrap up. Grace. Grace. You're either overwhelmed by God's grace or you're bored by it. I don't think grace ever makes us comfortable. I think grace makes us extravagant. We see who God is and what he's done for us. We just want to serve him. We want to give to him our time, our treasures, our talents. You did this for me, God? I am unworthy. I get to be your spokesman. I get to point people to you. Oh God, I love you. Oh God, you're amazing. Oh God, I worship you because you are worthy. Let me say this. If you are bored by grace, if grace doesn't move you, if grace doesn't rock your boat at times, I'm thinking that's a wake-up call. Can you say that again? If you're indifferent, if you're living life exactly the same way, If you're doing exactly the same thing. And grace hasn't changed the way you see your life, your possessions, or your time. It's a wake-up call. And I'm going to ask you today, what is your 
response. Let's pray. Father, I, uh, I don't... <laughs> I don't know why you love us so much. I don't know why you were your plan. It doesn't make sense. We're selfish. We forget all that you've done. We forget how lonely it is without you. We forget what drowning is all about. We forget, we forget. Oh God, help us be gracious to us today. Be merciful to us today. Unleash us this day, Father to make the impact you want. We pray this in your name. Amen.